how many times do I have to tell you? Have you said those words? Or have you had those words said to you? Said to you? You've said them? I have to confess, most of my life they've been said to me, but I think the scales have moved the other way now and I say them more often than I realise when I have to say, how many times do I have to tell you or ask you to fill in the blanks, clean your bedroom, do the dishes, stop hitting your brother or sister? It's deja vu all over again. And I feel like at this point, and often mum listens to talks online, I need to apologise. Yes, I know, now I'm saying what you said to me over and over and over again. It's something we get stuck doing. We say, how many times do I have to tell you? Because we get frustrated when people don't listen. Have you ever been frustrated when people don't listen? Yes? It's really annoying, isn't it? Well... We're in this middle section of Mark's Gospel and in this section we actually have Jesus telling the disciples over and over and over again the twist to the story. He says it three times that he's going to die, he's going to suffer and he's going to rise again. There's been three predictions of his death in this middle section, chapter 8 through to 10, where Jesus is telling this to them. And each time the disciples are going, sometimes fearful, sometimes confused, a bit of both, but certainly a lack of understanding that Jesus needs to tell them over and over and over again. You see on the screen that what we're seeing today is Jesus must die to save. And that's what's going on in these chapters. That's what's going on in the verse we're going to look at today. You see, what we have in verse 9, because he was teaching his disciples, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. The verse before in in chapter 8, he then began to teach them, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And then in 10.33, in the passage that we had for us today, as we move on to 10.33, we are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. See, this has been the twist to the one who has all power and authority. And instead of understanding and maybe getting it on the third time, we see that the disciples, a couple of them, are jostling for position. In that reading we had today, that they're they're wanting to be alongside Jesus. And Jesus is like, you don't understand what I just said. The other disciples find out and they're indignant They just haven't figured out what's going on. Don't you get it, Jesus is saying. How many times do I have to tell you? My kingdom that I said all along, from the moment I said, come follow me, is going to be very different. I've come to bring in the kingdom. It's going to come by repentance and belief. And it's going to be very different. 
And I've told you three times now why it's so different. And it's here, in this context, where Jesus gives deeper clarity to this kingdom, which is upside down to every other kingdom that's ever existed. He takes his kingdom, not by force, not by power and money, but by service. The service that requires his very life. It's completely upside down. Look at uh, 10.45. Here it is. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. It's the centrepiece of the whole gospel. So here we see who he is, which is what we've called this series, Who is Jesus? We see he's the Son of Man. We see that this Son of Man has a mission to save us by his death. And today, what I want us to do is to pull apart this verse. Why? Because I think here we see that not only who Jesus is and what he's done, we also see with clarity he is worth following. That's why our series is called what it's been called. That's why we've gone over over and over again. In this verse, we see the who and the what he's done proves he is worth it. And Mark's gospel is beautifully constructed. I I wonder whether you've seen that over the the last few weeks. I don't know whether you've uh, read Mark's gospel and previously thought of it as maybe the short version because the other Gospels are a bit longer, this is the short one, a bit of a snapshot, when actually, instead of it being seen as the short one, it's a literary masterpiece of the way it's constructed to help us to see who Jesus is and what he's done. You may or may not have been around in, one of, in the first week we did Mark, and we, we, sh- we showed the, the overview of Mark's Gospel in the video um, by the Bible Project boys, and in that video, they outline what the, what the Gospel looks like. It's very helpful, I think. You see it here. It's a bit dark there, but you see the who, chapters 1 to 8, Jesus telling us who I am. Who I am over and over and over again. And then chapters 11 to 16, next week, only one go, big breath for that one next week, 11 to 16, the how. And then in these chapters we've been doing the last few weeks, where we've purposely stopped and thought through them, we see the who and the how come together at the cross of Jesus. And that's what we're doing. That's why it's worth stopping and pausing on this verse. See, all all this talk of Jesus, no matter how good he is, no matter how impressive we may think that he is, don't we have to come back to that first point on the outline? Isn't he just a human? He keeps calling himself the Son of Man and it's worth understanding what that phrase is, the Son of Man. He keeps saying it over and over and over. Why? Well, it does just identify him as a human. God used those words to speak to his prophets sometimes. He he said that to Ezekiel. We see it there in chapter 2, verse 1. He said to me, Son of Man, stand up on your feet and I will speak to you. Just, you human, stand up. 
That's what the Son of Man is. But what happens in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Daniel, this human title is given a divine task, a God-only task. When Daniel prophesies about someone and describes this someone as the Son of Man. Have a look at Daniel 7, 13 to 14. It, what it does for us, it shows us why Jesus is harping on about this title of himself. And at the very centre of the gospel, he puts it in there. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, a way of describing God in all his glory, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. He is the sovereign ruler of all. That's who the Son of Man is. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you know that prophecy in Daniel about that human, that human-like one who is divine, that you didn't understand? The one who's being worshipped as only God can be worshipped? I have been saying all along, that is me. And look at the kingdom. This upside-down kingdom, look how long it lasts for. It will never be destroyed. This is why Jesus is someone that's worth listening to. If he is, in fact, this son of man, this is a kingdom we should want to be part of. But, as you see this glorious picture of one with power and authority and, and is going to be worshipped, you, you, like many of the Jews, like the disciples, you, you'd be tempted to think, this one's going to come and he's, going to, he's really going to kick down some walls. He's really going to take people down. Look at the power he has. To think he's going to take the kingdom with power. He's just describing himself this way as the Son of Man. But the real Son of Man, Jesus, is radically different. He has that power, but he uses it in a totally different way, which gets which gives bigger and grander results. So if understanding the Son of Man in this way, a human who's... It's kind of bringing Jesus' humanity and his divinity together. And here we have Jesus showing his authority, claiming to be this Son of Man over and over. Why did he come? Why did Jesus come? How does he save? Well, those, those verse, that verse really sums it up so simply and so uh, succinctly, it's worth us reflecting on. You see, why did he come? He came, firstly, to serve. Our first point in point two. He came to serve, that is, Jesus came for the sake of the other. That's what we're talking about when we talk about service. We're talking about for the sake of someone else. See, service does not include the phrase, what can I get out of it? Often, 
in the workplace. I remember as an OT, and maybe some of you can relate to this, when I was an occupational therapist, you would, you, you would be okay with helping someone else if it didn't disadvantage you. That if you could get something out of it as well, then you're happy to serve someone else. If you can work out an agreement in a partnership to, to run a particular group or program that's going to benefit both of you and make you both look good, that's how people would operate. And you're serving them because they're getting help. But it's not exactly the service Jesus is talking about. He's talking about being completely for the other. See, the way I, I like to think of it, I like to remember it by three initials. Three words uh, that I think sum it up beautifully. O-P-C. What's OPC? It's to be other person-centred. That's what Jesus is saying. Even the Son of Man. That is, even the one with all kingdoms and powers, and he, 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 he's over all the kingdoms. His kingdom will last forever. Even he is thinking other person-centred. Many of our rulers today, in our leaders, well, they're not kingdoms, specifically. OPC is not an initials that they would subscribe to, I think it's fair to say. See, we need to consider that Jesus is saying, I'm about you. It's why in the, the puzzle piece, the centerpiece was us, is because God has come for us. The prodigal son is a great parable, a pair of bowls. You realise that's pretty funny, I like that joke. Um, the parable, because God has done it for us. That's what it means. And other person-centeredness, which we will see, and we'll actually do in our Connect series, it leaks, in, leaks over and flows over into what the Christian community should look like, that we are for each other, not for ourselves. One classic example is how you think about coming to church. Do you determine you're coming to church completely based upon the fact, when you leave, you go, gee, I got a lot out of that. The talk was actually really helpful for me, and that was really great. And now this week, I can go on. Now, those things are good. God willing, that happens. But other person-centeredness is actually when you think, who did I help today? Who needed a conversation? Did I look for someone to talk to? Uh, what was I doing to help serve? How can I help next week? Is there anything I can do during the week? See the different mindset? Now that's just an, a small example of what we express to the greater reality in which what brings us into that community. What Jesus has done to serve. But we need to go further because for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, that's good, but the next bit, and give his life. See, the extent of his service is his very self. How far did he go? Well, there's nothing left behind. Nothing whatsoever is left behind. His serving involves everything that he has, his very life for us. 
You see, serving involves giving something. You give your time. When someone needs you, they've gone through a crisis and they need a shoulder to lean on, you give your time to them. When someone's down and out and they've been really struggling and they haven't got what they need and you help them with, you give them some financial assistance. When someone is looking for a friend and you decide to be their friend, you give them your friendship. Sometimes when things need to happen, you decide to give your coordination skills to make logistics happen, to make anything at church happen, basically, and anything in life, in the family life, when you give your skills to help. When we give food, we're giving something. Even wisdom, when we serve people by giving them our wisdom and advice so they can understand how to live in life. These things are much, uh, are, are fantastic, but Jesus has taken it to the extent of his very life. He's given his life for us. You see, what we see in this verse is that the Son of Man is one of sacrifice. And so point C, we see he is the one for the many. He has sacrificed himself for many others. See, surely, some would say, I actually read an article today and someone saying, surely the power of Jesus is in it being a great example of a heroic sacrifice, like our Anzacs and the many heroic stories we love to remember and people giving their life for us. The problem with that is, is it's not just an example. He's bringing in the kingdom. That's how this gospel started, wasn't it? The kingdom of God is near. Jesus comes and says, this is it. This is how I do it. It's not just an example. It's the bringing in of the eternal kingdom. It's to bring a people to be worthy of him. The lost son who comes back. Now, this can only happen if we think that we need to be brought back. That we could only understand this kingdom if we weren't willing to accept that we're in rebellion. So how does he do this one-for-the-many transaction? Well, in this verse, there's two ways to help us understand it, and they kind of come together beautifully. The first is the, the third last word there. He's given his life as a ransom for many. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of ransom. I think of one thing. I looked at what year it was, and it was 1996. So some of you maybe weren't even born. 1996... There was a movie by Mel Gibson called Ransom. Is it just me or did anybody see that movie or seen that movie? It was a good movie, wasn't it? it was, I, I enjoyed it. But the thing about that movie that I remember is, actually, I think I'll put a picture there for you. Um, Mel Gibson. Oh, did I not put it in? Oh, that's unfortunate. That's unfortunate. Um, I meant to. Now, in this picture of Mel Gibson, he's there sitting at the table in a studio and he has all the millions of dollars on the table. I can't remember how much it was, but just all these notes on the table. And the person has 
kidnapped his son. And he said, here is your ransom. See, ransom is to buy back something. And here he is with his money saying, I can buy it. You, here it is. I want to buy my son back. But the twist is, he then says, you ain't getting the ransom. I'm not giving it to you. I just want my son back, he says. He has all the money on the table. He says, you're not getting the ransom. And this is great scene. I, for some reason, it's stuck in my mind. I don't know. It was really compelling. I watched it on YouTube again. That's probably why it's stuck in my mind. But he's on the phone to this guy who's got his child and he's telling him, you're not, I'm not giving you a cent. You might as well kill him. I'm not giving him a cent. Just give him back to me. And then he just yells out in his piercing voice, give me back my son. It's like, whoa, Mel, you're on fire. It was intense. It was intense. He said, give me back my son. What happens? Well, you can try and find the movie and watch it. But that is what kind of gives us an idea of what a ransom is. Buying back something that is lost. Even more helpful way to understand ransom is probably in the Bible. Funnily enough, where ransom in the Old Testament is the payment for something like that. In Numbers, the Levites were a ransom for the firstborn. The whole priesthood. Um, in, in, in Exodus, uh, there was a money to be paid to deliver a person from death in certain situations. Now, if we've got Psalm, uh, I've gone back. Sorry, Sue, I've gone all over the place today. I don't think I put Psalm in either. Well, that's unfortunate as well. But in Psalm, in, Psalm, uh, in one of the Psalms, it talks about how if you are going to have life, you need to be bought with a price. If you're going to have life, you need to be bought with a price. That is what Jesus is saying about his very life. He doesn't bring us back with a wad of money. He brings us back with his life. We are being delivered from captivity, brought to God, through a sacrifice. And this sacrifice, the second part of the one for many, is that it's a substitution, is that his death is in our place. See, ransom is to be bought with a price, and this being bought with a price is Jesus dying in our place as a substitute, a sacrifice of atonement, you may have heard. See, money is not needed, something far more valuable, the body and blood of the Lord of all. You know, when we think about what it means to be a substitute, I can't help but think of the many times when I was substituted when I was playing sport and I was really bitter about it because <laughs> I wanted to keep playing. But that substitution was just a one-on-one. -on -one. This is a one for the many. He takes death for everyone and it becomes real for anyone who accepts and trusts in it you don't just do it uh, you don't just do something like this if you don't want people to come back with you see Jesus he can do it 
because he has the power and authority. That's why in Mark's Gospel, over and over and over again, we've seen how much power he has. If this is the first time you're here and you've never read Mark, go back and read all, those, all, all the chapters and you'll see. The point is, he has the power and authority to save. He can. He has the right to do it because he's been the one offended. You and I have been in rebellion against God. We're not innocent and kidnapped like Mel Gibson's son. We have purposely turned away from God. And he wants to bring us back. And that is why we see Jesus must die to save. And so the question there on the screen, do you want to be one of the many? Ignore the Mark 4, some serious PowerPoint issues today. That's what happened when Amanda goes on holidays and I'm responsible. Um, but what we see, do you want to be one of the many? You see, if Jesus has sacrificed himself and he's saying it is for us, that question is for you. It's actually for all of us. And the answer is yes or no, quite simply. And it's not something we can delay about. See, procrastination is a skill, I reckon. I'm calling it a skill because I'm good at it. Procrastination almost meant we didn't have church this morning. What do I mean by that? Well, we almost weren't able to get in the building because someone couldn't find their keys and we only have one key to this building. But I had a plan. I had a plan. I had a plan to get one of those things. I have it on my desk. I have one. Do you know what it is? Does anyone know what that white thing is? It's a tile. These things are brilliant. My friend gave me one because he knows what I'm like. And he gave me one ages ago. You put it on your key. And then whenever you happen to just temporarily misplace your keys, you can... Pick your phone, the app on your phone, and it ring, 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 ring. Ah, oh, here my keys are. Excellent. And then it can find it from all around the place, even if it's not in your house. It's brilliant. I have used it on the odd occasion. But unfortunately, they have a lifespan. And the lifespan meant I needed another one, and I got another one. And I've had it for over a month, and it's sitting on my desk. But I never put it on my keys because I just didn't do it. I delayed it. Well, I could not find my keys. And I was coming up with different scenarios, thinking another lesson in procrastination. And then you guessed it, Jen found them, and all is good. <laughs> the point is, the point is, you cannot, you cannot delay. See, losing keys is one thing, one thing. Losing your life into all eternity is another thing altogether. And when we see so beautifully and clearly today that Jesus has given his life, the response is not to delay. It's to decide, yes, he has given me life by his death. What do you need to do? Jesus has come. The whole drama of Mark's gospel is about us realizing 
we need to turn to him. Trust in him. And now we see trusting in him means relying on his death in our place. And knowing that that's what brings us into the kingdom for all eternity. Not our good deeds, not, not us seeing the example of Jesus and thinking, okay, now I can do a little bit better and then at the end maybe I'll get there. No, he has done it. Can I encourage you today to make that decision? Don't delay. Don't be lost keys into all eternity. Come back like the sun did. If that's what you've decided to do today, I'd love to see you just to be uh, uh, joyful with you and to help you figure it out. Because what we're making the decision of is that what we're deciding is that we are part of a new kingdom. It's not just I get a ticket and then I get into the game and then I don't need my ticket anymore, like going to the footy. You become part of a kingdom and so you figure out how it is that I live for Jesus. And that's where I want us to end today. See, if you want to be one of the many, you realise that you want to be part of a Jesus-shaped kingdom. That's what you want to be part of. You see, what saves you is what shapes you. When we get to the cross, what we want to do here at Grove is learn more and more how the cross teaches us to live. It's what we mean when we say we're a Jesus-shaped community. It's when we do our Connect series uh, when, when we do our Connect series in a few weeks' time and we get to get, figure out what it is that we're all on about, it's we'll be unpacking that even further. See, to be a Jesus-shaped community through his death means, well, we understand what love looks like by the cross. We understand what forgiveness looks like by the cross. We understand what serving looks like by the cross. I can embarrass Meredith now because she's not here, she's in with the kids, but weeks ago before we started, and we didn't know what to do with kids, because we didn't know, it's, it's tricky because you only got a few and you want to do something for them, but it's hard and we didn't know how to do the resources, and Meredith came and said, I've got an idea, why don't I for the first 10 weeks just run a program, you don't have to worry about it, and the kids, whoever comes, whether it's four, whether it's 20, will have something to do, and it'll be a great program where they'll learn the key teaching of the Bible. That's understanding the cross and what service looks like. It was a decision to give up coming to the church for the first, pretty much the first 10 weeks and going out with the kids because that's what we needed. That's the infectiousness that I'd love us all to have as a church if we're to be Jesus-shaped. It's something to be very thankful for. When the Jesus-shaped kingdom arise in all its fulfillment there will be no need for Jesus to head to the cross again but his kingdom into all eternity will be shaped by it it won't be upside down anymore because it'll be the only kingdom the right kingdom the right way up make sure today 
you are part of this kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that you gave your life, your son gave your life, gave his life as a ransom for many. We thank you for Jesus. Wherever we're at today, help us. Help us to understand who you are further. We pray by your spirit that any of us would be convicted to trust in what he's done at the cross. Help us to be a Jesus-shaped community. Amen.